glad you're here today on the eve of Veterans Day. We do want to say to all of our servicemen and women, thank you for your service. I just reiterate what Brian said in our welcome. It is a time for us as a country to pause and to remember the sacrifices of military personnel and our veterans who so faithfully served our country and the freedoms that we enjoy are freedoms that come with cost and they come with sacrifice. And so that's what we will do tomorrow as a country as we pause and we ponder. It is helpful uh, for us to, to pause and to tell those stories. Last night, Danielle and I had our boys and we were, were doing something at the house and we were going through some pictures and some of our grandparents have gone to be with the Lord and they have not intersected with all of our children. So we were telling the story of, of veterans within our own family and, and just reminding them of Norris Robertson. Norris Robertson is my wife's paternal grandfather, World War II veteran. Lamar Watley, my wife's uh, maternal grandfather, World War II veteran. Frank Shropshire, my mother's father, who was just this larger-than-life hero in my life, who's a Korean War veteran. And to be able to tell those stories to the next generation and to be able to, to allow them to see that what we so richly enjoy came with a cost that even has a personal familial connection to it. And I know that you who have children and grandchildren are telling those stories here on the eve of Veterans Day and specifically tomorrow. Galatians chapter 6 is where we are. If you're visiting with us, we're walking through the book of Galatians. We've found our way to the final chapter Galatians chapter 6. It is a call to community. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the great German theologian, wrote a book that was called Life Together. What does life together look like? Well, Paul is going to give us some insights into that very topic here in Galatians chapter 6. One of the temptations in 2019 is to live isolated from one another to live a Christian life that is seen exemplified in me and my Bible with soft worship music playing in the background. That's all I need, but that's not all you need. We need one another. We need one another to love us. We need one another to care for us. We need for one another to pray for us, but we also need for others to restore us. That's the subject that Paul tackles here in Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 through 6, and that's what will guide our time together in his words. Read along with me in your copy of God's Word. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be himself in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Galatians chapter 6 comes on the heels of two separate recipes that were given to us in Galatians 5. Fifteen ingredients that would comprise what we know to be the works of the flesh. Compared in Galatians chapter 5 to, to nine ingredients that uh, comprise what we know to be the fruit of the Spirit. In Galatians 5, he is saying to Christians that we have a choice to make. 
Will we walk in the flesh? And if we walk in the flesh, we will give ourselves to the desires of the flesh or will we walk in the Spirit? And if we give ourselves to the Spirit and we're led by the Spirit, there is a fruit of the Spirit that looks like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control and faithfulness. This is the fruit of the Spirit. Now, the fruit of the Spirit is not intended to be something that you hoard to yourself in isolation. You take to your home and say, we are going to enjoy the fruit of the Spirit, just me, myself, and I here, and those that are closest to me. Know that we are called as Christians to live in the Spirit in such a way that it intersects with people that need our help, who are struggling. Paul says that we're called to bear one another's burdens. We just sung that wonderful hymn, It Is Well With My Soul, Horatio Spafford, who reminded us that our sin, not in part, but in whole, was nailed to the cross, and we bear it no more. Christ is the perfect sin bearer. He is the one who is who, who has borne it all. You remember that old Southern Gospel song? He has borne it all so that we might live. So he's bore it all. But you are not called to bear the burdens of the sinful weight that only Christ can bear. He's the perfect burden bearer. He bears that debt that we cannot pay. But we are called, in light of what Christ has done for us, to bear the burdens that are sins and struggles to to help one another, to lift up one another in the midst of doubt, in the midst of discouragement, in the midst of despair, we're called to love one another, to reach out to one another. This is the type of call that, call, that Paul gives us here in Galatians chapter 6. And there's three questions that will guide us as we look at Galatians chapter 6. And the first question that I want us to answer from the text is, is simply, who needs help? Look again in your copy of God's Word. In verse 1, we read, brothers, if anyone is called in any transgression, you who are spiritual, should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Notice the encompassing nature of what Paul is saying here. If anyone is called in any transgression. So, so he isn't saying just those individuals that are called in the most overt and public of sins should be our calling to that person. No, he says if anyone, if anyone is called in any transgression, that word or that phrase in the English translation is called in. It's one word in the original language in the New Testament. It's a word that has a connotation of being surprised. I think it's kind of helpful. Very few people wake up as Christians and say, you know, today I'm going to do something that that brings shame, quote-unquote, to the name of Christ, that that maybe could harm my family. No, what, what this passage reminds us of is that we have an enemy who is strategic. Paul's not explaining away sin. He's not saying that the person that is called in a transgression has no responsibility. No, he's not saying that. But he is saying there is an enemy who desires to surprise us, to ensnare us, and to enslave us into a web of destruction. Paul would say it this way. He's writing to a church in Corinth that is dealing with tremendous discord. And he writes to them two times, for four times. We have two of the letters. The second letter that we have in the New Testament, he writes this about that enemy in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. But I am afraid. You see it on the screen? I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his... And do you you see the description? By his cunning, 
your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Notice that Satan has a cunning agenda to entice and to ensnare the believer in a web of destruction. Now, he cannot force you down that road. He doesn't make your decisions, but he does everything in his power to entice you into a place of temptation that ultimately will entangle you and ensnare you. And what Paul is saying is, is that sometimes, sometimes followers of Jesus need others who love us enough to say, do you know what you're called in? Sometimes Satan can be so cunning that we don't even understand where we are in our spiritual life. We can't even see that we're ensnared. We are in spiritual denial. And Paul says sometimes those who love Christ need to call people in a a spiritual intervention of sorts. Who needs help? Anyone. Who is called? The second question, who can best help? Verse 1 again, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Underline, put an asterisk by that word, you who are spiritual. That word spiritual, let's, let's focus on that word for a second. If you're looking at other translations of God's word, it might not say spiritual. That's why I want you to look at it. Because it might be translated, uh, what, what I think actually is a better, more accurate, or maybe more understandable translation. You who live by the Spirit. You who live by the Spirit. The ESV, you who are spiritual. The, the thing with spiritual that could get us astray from what Paul is saying is, is that some of you say, well, uh, 2019 people use the word spiritual and they use it to mean a whole lot of things. People will say, I'm not really sure about Christianity. I'm not really sure about following God in and through Jesus, but I am very what? I'm very spiritual. So I want to explore this and that. I want to take uh, that religion, the things that I like about it, and, and kind of mix it together in my own recipe of what spirituality. And of course, Paul's not, that's not what he's talking about. On the other hand, We read the word spiritual, and if you're sitting in a pew, you might use that word like a lot of Christians at times use. They say, that person's really spiritual. And so what they mean by that is, is that's sort of a reserve class of spiritual ops. I mean, like special forces that are better than other people. And of course, I'm not a part of that. So we need to call in the big, we need to call in the real spiritual to be able to to intervene into someone's sinful entanglement. Of course, I couldn't do that, but I want you to see this. The way that Paul utilizes the word spiritual leads up to what he's saying here in chapter 6. So you got to kind of go back and see in chapter 3, verse 2, he says that any person who accepts by faith alone and grace alone, accepts the gospel message that we become We become Christians who have the Spirit of God living inside of us. So you become a spiritual person because the Spirit of God dwells inside of you. Then in chapter 4, he continues down this theme and he gets right there to to verse 8 or verse 6 of chapter 4. And he says that we who are far from God, who've accepted the gospel message, we have the Spirit of God that lives in us. And we're able to be called sons of the Most High God because the Spirit of God seals our salvation. And not only do we just have the Spirit of God that dwells in us, 
But in chapter 5, he has this refrain that he says, you who are spiritual, you're called to do something. You're called, notice the refrain, verse 16, chapter 5, we're called to walk by the Spirit. Paul, he, he loves to say things again and again, just says it in a different way to make his point, to emphasize what he's saying. So he moves from verse 16 of chapter 5 when he says, walk in the Spirit. Then he says, verse 18, you're led by the Spirit. And then just to make his point, verse 25, he comes back to it. He says, keep in step with the Spirit. So this is the spiritual that Paul is talking about here. He's talking about men and women who've trusted Jesus. The Spirit of God resides in us. And we're not walking in the flesh, but we're desiring. We're not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. But we desire not to grieve the Spirit, but to walk with the Spirit. To be led by the Spirit. And here is the destination of any person who is led by the Spirit. He, the Spirit, will lead you to others who are hurting. The Spirit of God always has a destination. It's just this beacon mechanism that will lead you past yourself, past an undue preoccupation with everything that might not be going your way, and lead you to people that are hurting. And other people who are spiritual, prayerfully, as they walk in the Spirit, they'll see that you're hurting. So this isn't just a one-way street. This is a two-way street. We need people who love us enough who will intervene in our spiritual, sinful entanglement at times. And we need to be led by the Spirit, not where I, me, and my is of the ultimate value. But we and us and our life together. Now, I can, I, I mean... I can just see it. I see it in your eyes. I see it in our culture. The last thing that we want to do in polite southern cultures to be able to, to have those kinds of difficult conversations, there, there are certain things we just don't talk about. Certain places we don't go. And some of you are saying, hey, look, David, do you, do you know how many plates I have spinning already? And you're talking about bearing another person's burden? I can barely keep the plates of work and family going right here. But see, we need to see, we need to see the other through the lens of Christ. We need to see our neighbor, our family member through the lens of Christ. I heard a story recently uh, of, a, of a young child who was going through a, uh, ravages of a flood in Iowa. The way the story was told to me was is that a police officer saw in the distance uh, maybe a 10-year-old who was walking and he had looked like a 6-year-old up on his shoulders. With one hand, he was holding the ankle of the person who was draped over his shoulders. In the other hand, he had some groceries in a bag and it seemed like he had some extra clothes in the bag and they're all trying to get out of these storm-ravaged flood areas here. And the police officer ran to him and said, Son, 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 let me, let me help you. That boy on your shoulders is, is way too heavy for you to carry. He said, he said No, officer. He's not too heavy. He's my brother. He's my brother. And when you see the person that is sitting next to you, the person who's a family member that is struggling, 
a friend or a co-worker who is struggling, when, when you begin to see them not as, quote-unquote, inconveniences, but as brothers and sisters in Christ, and you're led to them by the Spirit of God, it opens your heart to them in a way that you and your own strength are not going to be availed to. But it's the work of the Spirit leading you to that person who is hurting. So we ask the question, who needs help? We ask the question, who can best help? And that is you, follower of Jesus. And the third question is, well, how are we to help? Notice again in the passage, verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should, what is that, what is it, should restore him. Restore him in a spirit of gentleness. In the New Testament, that, that word is utilized for, uh, at times, to rebuild walls and to mend fishing nets. It was something that was whole, something that was complete, but for whatever reason has been toppled over or has been cut through. And so you're bringing something back to wholeness. That's the, that's the impetus of this word restoration. Outside of the New Testament, it was utilized sometimes as a word that had a, a, a medicinal term to it. it. It had the idea of a fracture or a dislocation in the setting of the bone for wholeness moving forward. Some of you know this because you, you've had this happen in your own life, or maybe you have children, and they fall off of uh, playground equipment, and there's this dislocation, and it, it is, is painful for them in that moment. You know you need to take them to the ER. You know that for them to set the bone back into place is going to be something that ultimately is going to hurt them in the moment. But they need that. Why? Because when it's set back, it can heal. It actually can grow back stronger when it's set back in the right way. Now, now no parent would say, you know something, i got a lot going on right now. I know it's dislocated, but maybe you can figure it out. No parent would say, do you, do you know how good you have it? Could you imagine living in the 15th century? You, you think you have something to complain about? I mean, they didn't have any kind of ER. You, no parent would do that. You take them there, and even in that moment where they might hurt, you understand that hurt is for their good. And so oftentimes, we will not have those conversations because we know it is painful, but no doctor... No doctor would look at a child and say, I think I'm going to hurt them. I'm not really sure. I need to set it back into place. So, I, you know, maybe somebody else needs to do this. And so as Christians, we are called at times, not all the time, but at times to have these types of spiritual interventions where through the power of the Holy Spirit, a person is being restored so that wholeness spiritually, vertically to God, but horizontally to others is the outcome. And for us to ignore it and say, you know, it's none of my business. Somebody else needs to do this. Is, is to betray the life together that Christ has called us to and the Spirit leads us to. Now, notice that he doesn't say, and restore them violently. He says to restore them in a spirit of gentleness. Boy, this is a word that we need to hear. It's, a, it's one of the ingredients of the fruit of the Spirit, so it's not surprising that Paul would utilize this here. And what does it look like for us to restore a person gently? Well, I think there are a couple of ways for us to live into this passage. As this, this upcoming week, prayerfully, you would have the opportunity to intersect with someone that was hurting and needed your help. So we ask the question, how to restore gently? Well, we always, always restore in a relationship. 
Now, this is important because at times we, we become islands unto the, ourselves. We, we build walls and fortresses that are deep and mighty, and, and no, we don't want anyone to penetrate them. But we keep people away. But you need someone, not everyone, you need somebody who knows you when they can ask you, you know, how are you doing, David? And you say, fine, fine. That they know you well enough that they can look past the, the, the casual way that you answer that question and say, no, no, really, how are you doing? Now, we don't need everyone, and it's not realistic for us to be in those kinds of relationships with everyone, but you need someone who you're open enough with to, to know they can see the signs of enticement and entanglement in your life, and they can, they can lift you up. James chapter 5, verse 16 says that we are called to confess our sins one to another, and we will be healed. That we need others to come alongside of us. We need others to help restore us gently. And in my life, I've benefited from people who've intersected in my life in those kinds of ways. And you have too. And we're called to that also. We're never called to do that outside of those intimate relationships. I think it's vitally important for us to understand that this is this restoration is, is dependent upon healthy, honest relationships. When it goes bad, what generally is lacking is authentic relationships. I was at Walmart a few months ago, and I was there scour, you know, kind of scouring for sermon illustrations. You know, I just walk around Walmart and say, if I stay here long enough, I'm going to be able to talk about this on a Sunday morning here. No, that's not what I was there. I had to get something real quickly, and I was going through one of those checkout lines, and everything was backed up. And there was a mother who had a young child, two, three years old, and it was a very specific act of discipline that was done in that public setting. It wasn't abusive, but it was very vocal, and it was very specific, and everybody was there. It was like, whoa, you know. And so so we were all sitting there and minding our own business, and there was a person who took the initiative to go over there to tell this mother that the way that she was disciplining her child was unacceptable, and that did not go well. <laughs> that did not go well. <laughs> uh, you know, it is, it is never good to introduce yourself and then to critique a mother and the way that mother is disciplining their child. That's not good. So what did I do in that moment? As a pastor, I went to another line and got out of the way. <laughs> and, and, and really hoped that, uh, you know, another courageous pastor would, and I, I just got out of there because I'm not in relationship. Now, of course, of course there are times where, where, where we need to intersect and we don't have a relationship, but what is happening could be physically harmful and, and, and could be to the detriment of, of a individual. And so we need to intersect it, but, but much of life, most of life, the majority of life, Almost all of our life is not lived in those extremes. And so what I'm talking about is not you becoming the moral police to be able to stop people in, in, in public settings and tell them what they're doing is wrong. That, of course that's not what I'm talking about here. That's not what Paul is talking about here. That restoration that is gentle is done in relationships. So we need one another. We need to be in relationship with one another. So it needs to be done in relationship. And it needs, I would just say, it needs to be done in person. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, a spirit of gentleness, 
A spirit of gentleness really can only be detected through one's tone, one's voice, one's eyes. That There is something about the gentleness of, of being with a person that you love deeply. And in that moment, they can see the tear in your eye. They, they can hear the tone of your voice. That is almost impossible to convey in letter. That is, I don't think it's ever, ever beneficial to try to convey that in an anonymous letter. So what I'm talking about here is in relationship, it is in person so so that they're able to hear you say, hey, look, I'm not perfect. And what I've received is only by the grace of God. And I love you enough. And and I I want you to hear that that what I'm saying here is out of compassion. It's not to judge you, but it is here to because I love you and I care for you. And they, they hear that in your voice and they see that in your eyes. This is the gentleness that we're talking about here. That is very difficult to convey, if not impossible to convey, with ink and paper. Certainly not to convey on social media. I tell you this, you don't have to pray about this. You never have to pray, do I need to go on Facebook and make a public uh, uh, plea for the restoration of someone? You don't have to pray about that. You, you don't have to, there, there's certain things that I just want to help you as your pastor. You don't have to pray about that. You, you don't have to pray about writing an anonymous letter to somebody if you want to restore them in a spirit of gentleness. You don't have to pray about that. Don't do that. God's answered your prayer there. So, how to restore gently, always in relationship. How to restore gently, always in person. And and we know this, but we just need to be reminded of this. It's the whole context of Galatians chapter 6 here. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. When we restore someone, we always do it in humility. We, We are just one beggar telling another beggar where we have found sustaining, saving bread. When you understand grace... You are freed from superiority complexes. That, that person that you love, he, he or she, they don't need a Messiah. They don't need you to be their Messiah. There is only one Messiah. You can't fix someone. You, you can't save someone. You can't wave a Harry Potter magic wand and make all the difficulty of their life go away. No, but there is, there is a place where God desires to use you, you, you in your flesh and blood, you with your voice, to be the love of Christ, to see the love of Christ, to see the joy of Christ, to, to see the peace of Christ. What, what are all these ingredients? They're the fruit of the Spirit. And so oftentimes in our life, we need people to be that for us. We need to see that exemplified. And when we don't go to those people, when we write those people off, or we ignore those people, or we talk about those people to everybody else, we're never engaging them in prayer and in love. We're betraying the body of Christ and the uniqueness of, of what can occur in a church that is done with life together and not life in isolation. It was a public scandal. If I, know, if I named the name of the pastor, many of you would know. If I named the name of family members, many of you would know. I can name many pastors and many ministers and many public figures that have fallen, quote-unquote, from grace. And their, their, their ministries have been betrayed by the entanglement of sin that as it comes public, and this happened in the life of this minister. It was disastrous for the church. It was disastrous for his family. And the casualties of this are casualties that continue to, to bear uh, rotten fruit in the life of those 
connected to the situation. Months after the public outing, as you would say, of that private sin, this individual who was at the, the heart of the pain, caused much of it, was enticed by the work of Satan. He, he, he writes something that I have found to be so helpful for those of us who have family members, uh, th- those of us who have friends, those of us who have individuals in our life groups, and, and we know of enticement, we know of entanglement, and we have a choice to make. Hear the voice of one who was in that entanglement. This is what he says. One final word to the church. When people mess up badly, try to help them. Do your best to sacrifice anything and everything to help them. More than likely, they messed up badly because they need help. Don't turn your back on them. Pursue them. Something isn't right with them and they need help. Even if they've hurt you, do everything you can to help them. So you, child of God, we who are followers of Jesus, we're called to be individuals who walk in the Spirit. And when we walk in the Spirit... We're led to those who are entangled and hurt through the cunning ploy of the deceiver. And so our word today to to any of us that would intersect with someone that that is hurting and broken down by the ensnarement of sin, whether it's a family member, whether it's a friend, whether it's a co-worker, where it is someone that we've known for years and maybe even more recently we've gotten to know, our temptation is to back away. Our temptation is to change, quote-unquote, lines, to ignore them, to write them off. But Paul's word to us this morning, a word that we are called by the Spirit to live into, is to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. May it be so. May it be so. Let us pray. So God, we come to you praying that you would give us eyes to see those that are hurting, ensnared and entangled by the web of the deceiver. Lord, thank you because you're a God who pursues us when we're ensnared, when we're entangled. So there are none of us in this room that that come with this moral superiority. We, We are all sinners in need of your grace. So help us to see what you have done as you've come to us in our sinful condition. And help us to see the opportunity that you've given us to be love and to joy and and to show people peace and kindness and even gentleness. Whether it's a family member, whether it's a friend, whether it's a co-worker, whether it's a person in this very sanctuary that has been running from you has found themselves ensnared. May, May that person be open to the words of those that love him. May she be open to the words of those that care for her. May the person who's ensnared this morning not push away, but lean into your grace and your forgiveness. We need one another. 
None of us in this room are healthy when we're isolated. None of us are healthy when we're spiritual islands unto ourselves. So give us eyes to see the ploys of the deceiver and to be the hands and feet of Christ to those who are around us. We pray this in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus. Amen.